Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Fleenor. And I'm Sarah Sentry, and today we are here with very special guests. We have Mariah Owen and Leah McKendrick. Hi. Hey. Hi. So excited to be here. Yes. So these are the folks behind the Pamela and Ivy movie that just came out. So we, I personally just watched it uh, probably like 10 minutes before I hopped on this call. So I am very new to it. But yeah, I guess I just kind of want to kick off like what drew you to the character of Pamela Isley to begin with? That's such a good question. And I I think about it a lot because I don't remember exactly the moment of when I saw Poison Ivy, but I grew up around, I had a comic book store right around the corner in San Francisco. And I have an older brother and he would kind of take me there. And I felt very out of place because it was all boys in there. And it was even run by a man. And I was always kind of looking for pink because, you know, as a little girl, I think I, I thought that's my section of, of <laughs> every store is the pink section. That's where stuff is made for me. Mm-hmm. And I'd never, there was no pink section. <laughs> and I sort of thought, oh, okay, I guess, I guess I'm not really supposed to be here. But then I wanted to be cool like my brother and my brother's friends. So I would search the comic books for girls. And I remember finding Poison Ivy, Pamela Isley. And I loved her hair and I loved her that she loved nature like me. And she, she seemed very like a girl in a man's world. And that's how I felt in the comic book store. And so it was sort of this like very early introduction to being other and, and not being the same as my brother. And, um, at first it felt like a weakness, but I think it being being such a feminist writer and so much of my work being very, very deeply female driven, I think it was sort of the the genesis of so much as far as my taste, as far as um, how what kind of stories I want to tell. I want to tell stories about women behaving badly. So um, that was sort of the beginning. And that was something that I lived with for a long time and then just got the idea for an origin story. And, and Mariah, um, of course, as she does, like really backed me up and pushed me to keep going further so that we can make it. And how about you, Mariah? Did you have a connection with Poison Ivy before this short film? Uh, similar to, to Leah, uh, my dad always, you know, we always grew up cartooning in my house. My dad introduced me to comic books at a young age and I think my dad was really, really um, careful about the type of content that I was seeing when I was little and, you know, making sure that I saw strong female characters. And I remember the first couple comics I had, I had Batman with Poison Ivy, I had Wonder Woman, and I actually had I Dream a Genie. Um, <laughs> very interesting types of comics. But I think, you know, what really drew me to this after, you know, loving the character and just like Leah said, you know, Pamela Isley being such a brilliant woman, then turning into this, you know, iconic supervillain was just this awesome script that Leah wrote, you know, just on her talent and using the passion and love of the character. And I I mean, it was really hard to say no to. And so I just tried to cheer her on as much as I could, you know. 
Yeah, I think that's something that's so important about Pamela Isley is the fact that a lot of writers get carried away by making her trauma be the thing that is her story. And I think that that ends up being kind of a trauma loop a lot of times. Like, we'll just read the same trauma with her again and again. And I think that what was very different about this was that you're you're kind of showing how Ivy becomes this step away from that, right? And I think that that's not emphasized strongly enough. So I really appreciated that you all did that. Was that something that was conscious for you? You know, it's interesting because I I remember originally kind of going online and reading people's about people's um, their own fan fiction and and ideas that they had and things that they loved between her and Harley and you know in one version of the comic books it was a professor that was experimenting on her in another version it was a, a professor actually like torching her torturing her in like a, in a way they thought that she was um, stealing his his research and all of the, and then I saw how many times it's been reimagined and changed in the comic books. And that sort of like freed me up. And I didn't want to go so, so deep to where I started to lose my own vision and train of thought. So I kind of like absorbed a bit for a while and realized that I could kind of do whatever I wanted, as long as I was honoring the parts of her that I loved and the parts of her that I love, I love her resilience. I love her strength. I love that she loves nature. I love that she has in many ways a a theme that I relate to is sort of dying and coming back to life. And I listened to one of your, your other interviews with Amy Chu and I thought it was so, it was so cool how you guys talked about how she sort of like gets this bad rap. (laughs) She really has had, she's been sort of painted as very violent and erratic and um, there hasn't always been the best material for Ivy. And I just wanted to, in my version of Ivy's origin story, have some compassion and maybe some groundedness. Not that I'm trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel or anything. It's just infusing it with my own sort of taste. Right. Well, I think that there's been such a long time where Ivy has been viewed really unsympathetically, even whenever somebody is like, well, this is somebody who was like reeling from trauma. There was, you know, all kinds of problems in her life. And then, you know, she's striking out people who genuinely are villainous. And so you're it's always kind of a strange thing where people feel like they need to go that extra mile to kind of like villainize Ivy, I think. And, you know, for my money, the best takes on Ivy are the ones that are like... She is also coming from this place, you know, that that is actually very understandable, right? So I think that that comes across perfectly in this movie. Love that. Thank you. And I, I completely agree with Sarah. I think what's so powerful about Pamela and Ivy is that we get this very compassionate, even even the view that the lens, like the camera lens takes is a compassionate one, right? Like it's not voyeurist it's not accusatory it's like this is what she lived through and it was scary but hey guess what we like kept the worst parts out so you don't have to see them you get to know <laughs> it's inferred right like right and, and yeah. I, we talk a lot about the importance of violence against women and children and and uh gendered violence being it's important to be careful about how we portray that right because it's easy to re-traumatize viewers and you use so much restraint in this story that's really really traumatic and that doesn't mean that there aren't parts where i was like oh that are like yuck, yuck, yeah. i hate this. i mean 
but I mean, yeah. Eric Roberts, right? <laughs> like, yeah. He, yeah. He has a, he just, there's a, a moment when his voice just goes super stern and you're just like, <laughs> like totally. And I, I think another thing to mention too, Eric, you know, Eric is a grandpa himself, loves kids, you know, really great with working with kids as well. And I think, you know, making sure that, um, our little girl, Aria, Aria Lyric Labu, like she knew that she was safe. That was a huge, right. huge, huge component as well. You know, working with minors, it's it's tough. And we're telling a story about a lot of trauma, as you mentioned, um, and, and wanting to be cognizant of that and making sure that we're creating a safe space to not only highlight that in our film, but also make sure that we're creating a safe space on our set for that to happen. Totally. And it, I think that comes through. You know, I was the, I, my partner and I, we watched it a couple times and we were talking about this time because I was like thinking about Eric and I was like, that guy is such a nice guy from what I know. Like, you can only do those things, in my experience, the acting, which is limited, to be fair, uh, when there's a safe environment. You know, you can get to better performances when you really can be like, okay, we are going to suspend the, this, like, fear because it's not real. But also, you can go there. Like, you will be safe on the other side. You can go there. And that, to me, that really came through and almost became, like, another theme of the film. I, I grew up in an abusive household, and so there were just parts of this that really resonated about the way children can survive things that are just just untenable because they just find ways and so this idea that ivy first shows up as this way for her to be mad at herself for being weak but also this protector who's encouraging her to protect herself but then you know by the time we see the two as adults we get to see you know first pamela and then ivy that seems like that antagonism has been resolved there isn't really a it seems it, there isn't a the thing you get with the Hulk, right? Where Hulk and Banner are always fighting. No Hulk's turn. No, it's Banner's turn. No Hulk's turn. You don't feel that here. You really feel like Ivy and, and Pamela have found a way to coexist. And I think that's, to me, that's so much of what I love about her is that she is so accepting of who she is, at, you know, after she gets her powers and after she decides, you know, I'm going to be an eco-feminist and... People are going to malign me and that's their problem, whatever. Like, that's such a, a freeing thing. But it, again, it comes from this root of such deep trauma. And she goes through this, again, antagonism towards herself, but then comes to a resolution. I thought that was one of the, I mean, to me, that was like the love story of the of the film is like her, Pamela and Ivy learning to love each other and accept each other. I so appreciate you speaking on that and having the experience firsthand. And I actually am, have been sort of, nervously awaiting somebody um, speaking on it that has a an intimate relationship with um, abuse from their childhood. So I so appreciate you, Essie, for saying that. And it it is it is sticky, but that actually really is the story. It is about embracing all of the sides of you that make you who you are. And it is that it, in the beginning, she's. Um, She's sort of an antagonist and and by the end they have she's she's her protector, she's her savior, she's her freedom. So you hit the nail on the head and I'm so glad that you I felt it's very I feel that it's very it's such an awkward thing for me because I never I really don't think it's cool when a filmmaker like reveals everything that they're fit, what you know what they were thinking when they were making their film because I think that art is supposed to be open to interpretation and I believe that there are no wrong answers if you saw something in the film then that is what it is and that is the truth it is meant to be interpreted and um but but it is really nice when somebody like USC like does pick up on the themes that 
um, were uh, that we hoped for, we hoped to craft. Well, it's a it's a pleasure to be the person <laughs> critiquing things, you know, because I'm I'm a creator as well, and I think it's super hard to write write trauma and write internal battles in ways that a play externally. I do a lot of editing and a lot of telling people, so you got to find a way to externally manifest what you're trying to describe inside their psyche because we're humans and we see things. That's like, we're very visual. It's incredible to see you externalize that so well. And um, I get chills every time when you do that flashback where we see all of the scenes where it's just one child, just Pamela, but then we flash back and we see the whole time Ivy was there with her. We were the ones who couldn't see her, the adults. And, oh, like, it's just such a, <laughs> a powerful representation. And so, I don't know. I just, thanks for making cool art. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> so, that's so dope. Do, Mariah, do you remember that that was, like, it was so funny because when we were preparing, when we were prepping it, and we were so over budget as we were budgeting it, and I was like, well, what makes the most sense is we cut all of the professor stuff. We cut the greenhouse. We cut the injection. We cut that. And Mariah was like, no, we're not cutting it. She's like, it's not happening. And then I was like, okay, okay, let me just do another pass. And then I added those flashbacks. So it's like we were we were trying to cut down, and then I ended up adding. She refused to cut, and then I added stuff. It's like, isn't that filmmaking? Where we're like, cool. So we we're actually now way way over budget. Good job. Glad we went over this. But it's it's funny because it's like that was the chunk that she really fought for was the greenhouse stuff, which is like some of my favorite stuff now. And then the stuff that I with myself was like I would it came to me later was doing those flashbacks where we can actually see um, Ivy, even if we didn't see her um, initially, the adults. And I love how you said it. The adults couldn't see her because I think about ghosts. Right. You know how babies and little kids can see ghosts. I don't know if you believe in this stuff, but I believe in this stuff. <laughs> I read a lot of stories about ghosts, so I'm on board either way. <laughs> I do feel that there's such an element of adults. And and yeah, sure, it's metaphorical as well. They don't see everything. They don't look closely enough. That's a running theme, right? Like the, something that I caught this time that I missed the first time is when there is that moment where she's, you know, fighting back as the adult Ivy, not giving anything away. Uh, she has the situation under control, but then you hear all this sound come rushing in, not just the the music rising, but also it's, you know, um, news reports, right? News reports of like, adults did report this and someone hid it, right? Like someone hid that Ivy was in trouble or that uh, Pamela was in trouble as a small child. And so then you get the second sense of like, yes, adults can't see Ivy, but like adults didn't see what a child who needed help, you know, only one adult in a diner full of people. And that's just guessing one of probably dozens of places he took her noticed, you know, like that's such a powerful message to then reinforce with the Pamela Ivy duality. Thank you. That's so, yeah, that's so real. I mean, it's these, you know, sometimes, you know, you hear these stories about these children that have been kidnapped and they're being like paraded around town and they're these very normal looking men and they're white and they're privileged and they're middle class. And it's just such a picture of white privilege and male privilege that no, everybody turns, averts their gaze. Everybody looks away because they assume, they assume nothing could be going on there. 
And so I, that was sort of where the news reports and stuff came in because um, it took on a new life of commenting on, um, you know, a, a, a social structure that enables abuse. So what do you what do you think about? See, because I think with Ivy, she is a character where if you changed almost any element of her, then she wouldn't work, right? So you can have her as, you know, the way that she kind of cares about humanity, but only insofar as they're not destroying plant life and things like that. I think it's very specific that Ivy is an environmentalist because environmentalists for the longest time, you know, people ran articles all of the time in like major newspapers that were like, climate change is a hoax, basically, and stuff like that. So I think that we've had a culture that pretty much has just, you know, repeatedly and consistently dismissed environmental concerns. And therefore, Ivy makes perfect sense as an environmentalist because this is a character who has been repeatedly dismissed regardless of what her intentions of her actions are. So I'm just curious how environmentalism plays any kind of, or if it plays any role in your understanding of Poison Ivy. I think, I mean, for both of us, we obviously really care about the environment uh, just as people and let alone as filmmakers. Leah and I are both heavily connected to nature. Uh, I think it's imperative for Poison Ivy and especially for our rendition of an origin story um, to, to highlight the, the care and the conservation because, you know, our whole thing is that ivy grows from where she's planted. And I think, you know, with her being such, uh, I believe the term you used was uh, eco-feminist earlier, which I loved. I hadn't heard before and now I'm obsessed. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's so imperative that she is just so undeniably passionate about the world and the earth and getting back to the root of it all. And I think that's a huge thing for us, getting back to the root, getting back to the origin. Um, and environmentalism is, you know, obviously a passion of Ivy's, but it must be a passion of the world we live in right now. Totally. And, you know, to me, the, the moment where he yells, I feel like there's one curse word in the movie and it's weed. It's a weed. And to, because to, to Ivy, that would be a curse word. Like there is no such thing as a weed, right? Like there's just plants that are where people don't want them. And I think that that's such an amazing way too of thinking about her, her ecofeminism, thinking about her mentality in the world. But then when you said she, you know, she grows where she's planted, I was like, holy shit. Like that's also what weeds do. There's so many layers here. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's so good. And I think with the weed too, especially in that line, I, it's interesting how you said it, you know, as a, as a curse word or a bad word because it's so dismissive and it's so demeaning. And that's something that Ivy is so used to her whole life. Um, so it's really cool that you, you, thank you so much for, for providing us with all these new insights on, on our film. Yeah, <laughs> you, you really, you really, you got it more than I did. Hey. <laughs> It's, it's what we do. It's what we do here at Bitches on Comics. We read Love into that. everything so far. So good. Quite literally, like, drawing so parallels amazing. between attacks on nature and all that Pamela has gone through is definitely something that is it, maybe not a hobby of mine, but something I do a lot. You know, Leah, as, as you portrayed her, both as you really, I thought, captured the sort of more nuanced shift i felt like there was a really stark one for was it aria is that the young actor's name yes for aria it felt like there was a very stark shift between her pamela and ivy and then i really you know yours it felt so much like a like a 
transition. Like that that was just a closer dichotomy than the like what they were when they were children. And mm. your lipstick is fierce. I like <laughs> so much. Your fucking costume is amazing. Uh, I love Thank the whole you. thing. Your whole makeup looks like so cool. I was like that is haunting. I love it so much. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was t- that was the you know, and that's the day that I'm obviously most insecure about because when you're it's funny because I'm like I'm insecure as an actress I'm insecure as a director I you know but then when you're doing it all as once you're like super duper insecure about everything all at once but when I'm just directing (laughs) and my hair is up in a bun and I don't have makeup on it's like you it's so nice to remove all of the vanity you know because you're just I'm looking at my little muse and I'm loving her work and I'm watching Eric and I'm looking, I'm behind the monitor and all of that. It, it feels, it, it feels in alignment. But then when you're like sweating out of the leather suit and you're trying to do um, fight sequencing and you, you can't get over to the monitor after every take. So you're trusting your DP and I had an amazing DP who I love and I do trust, but there's still in the back of your head, you know, you're going, you're screwing this up. You're screwing this up. So it's really it's really nice when when people say they love the suit and they love the makeup and they love the the look in the liquor store because that was like so hard and I was definitely sweating off my makeup so (laughs) I'm glad you can't tell you can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything you might shop while working eating or even listening to this podcast and however you shop we all know and love the thrill of the hunt but do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. What are some of your other favorite renditions of Ivy? Because she's been in so many things outside of, you know, just the comics. I know for me, I really love the cartoon Ivy, even on DC Universe right now. 
Um, that's been a huge part for me, you know, even I've watched before we made Pamela and Ivy, but even now kind of connecting with fans of Ivy uh, or people who are now, you know, fans of our film. Uh, I really love the kind of, uh, intricate, um, I I mean, I love the intricate relationship of her and Harley. I love the female driven friendship of them in the cartoons, um, as well on DC universe right now. And I love how articulate she is I think that's a huge 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 step up from a lot of the previous versions that we've seen um prior to ours you know um you know not super sexed up but it's just it's it's a really really cool rendition and I it's cartoons you know it kind of makes me think about my childhood but it's still relevant and still resonates with me today for me even though I I know that she was obviously Batman and Robin and in in many comics comics since the 60s and in Gotham and many iterations I actually auditioned for one of the iterations um in Gotham and didn't get it and um and and I and and I know that she's been and oh in the Lego movie in the Batman Lego movie um so I know that there have been many iterations of her but I felt like the only reason that I had enough confidence and enough um drive to get it done was that I felt that there was still so much more to do and maybe it was because I am not so familiar or well versed in the comics and that all that most of what I had seen had been in 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 film form which isn't much you know you have Batman and Robin is sort of like the 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 queen of Poison Ivy um film work and it's not like super beloved as far as not like Catwoman like Michelle Pfeiffer you're not going to see me playing Catwoman anytime soon not going to mess with that <laughs> but I do th- I do think that I in some ways tackled it because I felt a desire to see more from her well you know and it, you mentioned earlier listening to us talk with Amy Chu and that's that's sort of her philosophy that's how she chooses the comics she wants to write is like who's been done bad, (laughs) who deserves a better take, you know? And so I think that that's something that I think a lot of people who love Ivy and feel a connection to Ivy also feel is like a desire to have more takes that show her as, as the person we see, you know? I don't know if you've seen it, but there's this great fanzine that came out, I think in February, maybe beginning of March that was it's called Vines and Roses and it's a whole mm. fanzine about what people love about Poison Ivy and about her as like, oh, a feminist. That's so her cool. about, yeah, a botanist, a queer woman, all these different things. And it's really, really fun. It also has like cute things like chapstick recipes. Oh my God. Totally it's free. Just Google Vines and Roses fanzine. You will totally find it and just you have to read it because it just makes you feel like you're just part of a huge crew of people who love her so much, you know? And I love that. I'm a big I'm a big believer, we're a big believer on the pod that like no one has to read every fucking issue with Poison Ivy in it to be an <laughs> Ivy fan. Like a right. lot of the doesn't issues mean I'm not going to try. But... Yeah, well, Sarah also has a capacity beyond all reason. <laughs> That's true. And I can, I, for some reason, have a high tolerance to reading bullshit, so I can read through, like, a bunch of bad stuff and be like, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, you know, go for a long walk, (laughs) think (laughs) about it, Um, and then just kind of, like, you know, put that towards other things, I guess. But I think that that's, I mean, that's the consensus, right, among Ivy fans, essentially, like, I think even from our perspective, where we're all kind of just like, yeah, I mean, this is a character that's been treated really badly. So any take on her that <laughs> treats her a little bit better is 
certainly something that, you know, there is an audience for. So yeah. I, I do want to hear, like, how do you think Ivy's queerness plays into the film? You know, she doesn't have romantic relationships, so obviously there wouldn't be that manifestation. But I didn't know if it was, like, part of how you built her or part of what you thought about with her. I just, I want, you know, I I, I try not to, to speak too much about what will happen. And I try to just be happy about what we have created. But I, I really want to explore that side of her. And I really want to be able to see her fall in love and I think that love is, is so complex and, and, and it can involve sexuality and friendship and, and I don't know that it will be hardly necessarily that we'll introduce if we were given that opportunity. But, you know, I think to this day and age, it's so important to, to not just show every sexualized female character as straight. I don't think that that's the way the world works. I don't think that that's a world that I want to live in or see constantly on screen. Totally. And I think also not using it as a marketing tool. You know, I think that's a big thing, making sure it's genuine and, and kind and realistic. Right. The last thing we need is more garbage ass uh, queer representation. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> like, if, you know, it's a 16 minute film. You don't really have a lot of time to do everything. Right. But I saw a lot of queerness in it. I think oh, whenever. Oh, yes. Love to me, that. whenever there's two characters that are the same person, like that's a queer story. That's about the way society puts pressure on us to be something that we we are or are not. I, I and I see that resonance. I see it in the way that she really it's her story about fucking claiming herself, right? right. Like she yeah. is picking herself up, not by her bootstraps, because that's bullshit, but literally off the concrete floor and looking the scary dude in the eyes and being like, Don't fucking hurt my weed plant, man. Not not <laughs> like a cannabis plant that would be like my plant but like her plant is a, a weed different <gasps> different she's a child we gotta make that clear this um, uh, it takes me to my next question good do does it. poison ivy smoke weed of course right of course. isn't there a storyline where she helps like uh create some hyper strong strain of weed and helps like introduce it into <laughs> gotham I'm not sure if that's a story that exists in the comic or if that's your fan fiction. You know what? Either way, (laughs) someone produce that shit now. That sounds great. Well, I know you you, you talked about in the future taking Ivy in a direction or Pamela Pamela Ivy, if you will, in a direction where she would get to explore her sexuality and and know what that means. Um, And it makes sense that it wouldn't be with Harley necessarily. You know, this is doesn't have to always be Harley. And plus, Sarah and I always talk about like they're clearly polyamorous. Like there are very Mm -hmm. long periods of time they do not spend together, but they're not broken up. Like whenever Harley Mm -hmm. shows back up, she's like, hey, long time friend over here <laughs> so it's like oh harley you bitch I love you. Uh, so yeah i mean i think there's so much potential to explore that and to do it in ways that maybe don't involve kite man but that's my opinion <laughs> yeah it's the unfortunate consensus that we all had to come to um how did casting work because i was very surprised to see eric roberts face <laughs> right i was like what Go for it, Mariah. That's all. That was all you. Woohoo! Uh, we're really lucky to have had a couple awesome uh, casting directors on our team. Lead casting director Arlie Day. Uh, we had Lauren Harrell and my uncle Bowder as well. And to kind of help us fill in the, I don't want to say fill in, but help us attach the awesome people we needed on our team that were without, uh, were were not within our reach. Um, a lot of our friends helped us out on this. You know, both Leah and I acted in the film. 
Um, but kind of taking the leap to, you know, have Eric Roberts on the team. We knew we wanted someone who was quote unquote, a name, someone who could bring something to the, the project. And, um, we're just so grateful that he did it. And it's been a real hit having him, uh, be a part of Pamela and Ivy and just kind of reading the comments, people being like, Oh my God, that's Maroney from the dark Knight," Or like, you know, <laughs> uh, that's been really cool too. Cause it's kind of, I think, given us a type of street cred that we didn't really you know, anticipate. Um, and I think among just our friends and our families as well, you know, obviously we hope the film goes way further than that. And so far it has, but I think among our friends and family, it's almost like that solidification that, you know, we are real filmmakers because we have a real name and a real star in our, in our film. So, um, the casting process was really cool. It was a great learning experience. And I think for us, um, you know, we're just so grateful to have people a part of the project who are fans and are passionate about the story as well. Yeah. I also, I mean, the person who plays young Pam did a really phenomenal job. Is it different, obviously, to direct a kid than, and I don't want to say kid in a weird, I don't know, like a young person, I guess. I feel like kid is like almost a derogatory <laughs> kind of term. But... <laughs> Um, yeah. but yeah, is it, did you have to adjust your directing style? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think more so because she's my star, you know, I, right. I think when it's your star, you want her to feel that she is safe to do anything, you know, that if she's uncomfortable, she's safe to tell me if she needs to eat, if she needs a break, if she, and, 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 you know, they do take a lot of breaks cause there's, there's laws for, for child right, actors. Yeah. Um, but just, I think I, I, I felt like when I directed, it was almost like I felt like she was my little sister and I would kind of talk to her like she was, I do have a little sister in real life. And, um, that was sort of how I felt the dynamic worked. I never wanted to feel that she, that, that I felt like a boss of any sort or director of any sort, but that I was like an older sister and we were making something together and we were in it together because I was playing her older self. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And just, she's just such a pro though. Sometimes I think I would like baby her a little bit and she would be like, you need me to cry? I can cry. Let me know. (laughs) When? You want me to cry right now? I'll start crying right now. I'm like, are you, are you okay? Do you, what? She's like, yeah, I got it. I'm see. look, I'm tearing up right now. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. Camera rolling. Let's go. (laughs) So sometimes I think I might've taken it too far, you know, trying to be comforting to her. And she's just been, I mean, she's a well-oiled machine. She you know, plays Harrison Ford's granddaughter in a film and Keanu Reeves' daughter in a movie. I mean, she works more than anybody. Um, but but at the same time, I think being an actor myself, it's like I think I do my best work when I can play. And and it, and feeling that there's a space to play is, the, I think, the sweet spot for creativity as an actor and that you're not going to disappoint anybody if something that you do doesn't work and and it was like so I honestly it's like I have so few memories of even directing her because it was so smooth. I just felt like it was like just flowed like water because she's just such a pro and um the harder stuff in my mind is like the stuff with me acting. I'm the problem child. The problem <laughs> actor on the set was me. Um but she was just like a piece of cake. And same thing with Eric. I mean, Eric is like works I mean he he shoots like every day of the year. It was so funny. I was talking to him and um, and, and he was telling me that he once said to his wife who, who manages him, he said, I want to be on set every day of my life. 
and his wife, this was like back in the, you know, 80s or early 90s before everybody could own a camera. And then one day when digital started coming up and every, these cameras were so inexpensive, she goes, I think I'm going to be able to get you on set every single day. And that's, that's what he likes. That's his love. That's his happy place is being on set. So we're grateful that somebody that has worked as much as Eric and continues to work as much as Eric is down to do little short films like ours, little fan films um, with first time female directors. And it's, you know, it's been it's a gift. Well, is there anything that we didn't talk about with with y'all, with the film that you would like to talk about? And what you have coming up uh, oh, also, you, because we'd love to talk about that as well. I mean, we're just so excited for more people to see Pamela and Ivy. We hope that they share it with their, their friends, their family, fellow supervillains and heroes. <laughs> um, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, we made this film for people to see it and to watch it and to enjoy it and to talk about it, you know, and I think that's been such a rewarding part is, you know, there's been so many almost overwhelmingly positive comments um, that we're so grateful for. And then there's also some that, you know, aren't necessarily the ones that we were hoping for, but you have to be grateful for them because we got people to think and to talk about the film and to say what they liked and what, you know, what worked for them. And I think that's something that, um, you know, we're both really excited about is just to get people talking about it and to get people to see it. Uh, other than that and working on Ivy and kind of what's next for us. Um, I mean, we're still kind of determining what's next for the film for me personally, just working on, you know, writing and acting, producing that whole thing, some projects, um, that will finally be able to be filmed once we're allowed to film again in this post COVID world, whenever that is. Um, but yeah, just for right now, riding the wave that is Pamela and Ivy. Well, where can people find the film? You can head to, uh, either, GTE's GT Productions YouTube. You can head to our Instagram. We're uploading the video now as we speak, actually. Our Ooh. social medias, uh, Pamela and Ivy Film. If you use the hashtag, hashtag Pamela and Ivy Film, you can find us there as well. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you could just go to PamelaandIvy.com. The film's up there, too. Or you can Google us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can always Google <laughs> that's true oh uh, my god <laughs> and leah has a lot of cool stuff coming up too so i think it's it's an exciting time leah do you want to do you want to share yeah i'm i'm working on my first tv show at hbo max it's called what Yay! the fuck glenn it's a dark congratulations comedy. thank you yeah it's been really um it's been, it's been tough but amazing um and i i'm writing the prequel to greece which i've been working on since september which is my dream, yes. my dream job. That is incredible. Yeah, it's called Summer Lovin', and it's at Paramount. So that'll be coming, hopefully soon, man. You know, we'll see. It's amazing things to look forward to if I can just get out of bed. <laughs> the biggest challenge. The, the challenge every day poses. Can I get out right? of this bed? Have you ever been stuck on a call you really wish you could get off of? I guess it's official. Oh. I guess we're partners. Thank you. Here we go. I feel like after that incredible dinner that we had with you the other night, and I'm, I'm not going to tell you how much it was. But you try to put two dozen oysters in a spreadsheet, you know, your accountant's not so happy. So can't even write those off when, yeah, they, when they come from seafood. Oh. Gets tricky. So right. Conference call follows a down on her luck tech industry wonderkin by the name of Julie Burke, who has no other choice but to partner with two brothers from the reject piles of Shark Tank as they desperately try to develop their next invention. 
When recordings of Julie's calls with the Toad Bros end up in the hands of an investigative journalist, she presents her audience with the wild twists of Julie's story, showcasing the best of their worst, most cringeworthy phone calls. Conference Call, a Paradiso Media production presented by Realm, stars Elizabeth Henstridge, Jeff Ward, Gregory Stees, and Emma Roberts, and featuring Karen Gillan, Beck Bennett, Dimi Dijuibe, Clark Gregg, and many more. Be sure to listen and subscribe to Conference Call wherever you get your podcasts, or learn more at realm.fm.